Good evening, everyone. I'm Laura Coates, and welcome to CNN Tonight. Now, look, it's being called the first Twitter-fueled bank run. Customers withdrew $42 billion. Yes, I said billion with a B. It all happened in a single day just last week from Silicon Valley Bank. The viral panic spreading on Twitter, texts, and also chat groups, which, of course, raises a ton of questions. Like, where do we get our information, and who do we trust with that information, and what happens the next time? Plus, what exactly is the mission of a women's college? Now, the answer may not be as obvious as you may think. One of the top women's colleges in this country, Hillary Clinton's alma mater, Wellesley College. They're now divided over whether to open admission to all non-binary and transgender students, including trans men. We'll discuss all of that tonight. And in pre-pandemic times, you know, they call that the olden days, I guess now, a lot of us could not have imagined for a moment working from home in the long run. But now it's a fact of life for so many people. But what if it turns out that working from home is actually less healthy than you think? Would you change your mind about doing it? We've got a lot to talk about tonight. Here with me, the New York Times' is Emma Goldberg, Congressman Ro Khanna, former Senate candidate Joe Pinion, and very serious podcast host Josh Barrow. I'm glad that you're all here with me tonight, everyone. There's a lot to talk about here, and I want to begin with what everyone's been talking about, but from a different angle. The idea of this bank run, the idea of what happened for these bank failures, it raises the question, given how people first learned about it, I mean, we thought that social media might have its own vices, right? Might be problematic in some ways, but it really seemed to be the impetus for people getting information quickly, Congressman, um, about a potential for a bank run. How does that set with you? Well, I think you saw that almost every venture capitalist, every tech leader is on Twitter and money moves very, very fast. And so it was so important for government to move fast. I'm glad that Secretary Yellen got there by Sunday night and give them credit. Uh, but we do have to think about how are we going to make sure we're moving as fast as money moves in a modern economy? Speaking of fast, I mean, my concern, you think about it, is it's, you know, you, it's important to hear about it, but to get it right. It's kind of like in the media, right? You don't want to be the first to publish. You want to be the first to get it right, get the information out there. And with the speed of social media, with the ability to get information from here to across the world in seconds, it raises concerns about the quality of information. Do you have concerns about whether it's trustworthy to have it so quick? I mean, not in this instance, because the concerns about Silicon Valley Bank were well-founded. The bank really did have a solvency problem. Mm. I actually, in some ways, this was a fairly low-tech bank run, because obviously we saw it spilling out onto Twitter over the last few days, but over a period of months, you had warnings among the very small community of customers of this bank. It, it was, in a, in a way, it was like a small-town bank. It's, these, it's this small constellation of high-tech companies and the venture capital firms that fund them. These people all know each other. They have each other's phone numbers, you had warnings going from these VC firms, from some of the firms to these companies saying, we have concerns about whether Silicon Valley Bank is solvent. We think you, you should move your money somewhere else. It's actually very much like it's a wonderful life. It's like being in a small town. And that's part of why Silicon Valley Bank was so vulnerable. A more normal bank with a more diverse customer base, the customers wouldn't all be talking to each other about the bank's financial condition. They wouldn't be as vulnerable to that. So we saw it spell out onto Twitter at the end. But I think it was really a sort of a more traditional type of of community conversation. And again, 
The bank really did fail to manage its interest rate risk correctly. It really did end up with a lot of assets on its books that declined in value. And there were very valid concerns about whether the bank had enough assets to back up all of those deposits. So in the end, you know, I don't think Twitter really misled people here. I got to tell you, I've never heard anyone mention It's a Wonderful Life in the context (laughs) of this. And I am all here for it. But in that case, remember, at the end of the movie, it was the people of the town that actually had to foot the bill and try to support George in the end. See, I, I know Jimmy. Okay, so we're, we're talking, we're talking my language and whatever Clarence has for the wings. However, in this instance, he's right, right? Ultimately, it did fail. There was a collapse in thinking about this. But there's still the very real notion that and Atlantic has a, uh, a comment on this and a, a point that they made. And I want to read it to you all. It's talking about more to the point and the idea of shouting fire, essentially. It says more to the point by tweeting in such an over-the-top language about the inevitability, not the possibility, but the inevitability of massive bank runs across the country. They were, of course, making such bank runs more likely. Shouting fire in a crowded theater is not necessarily wrong if the theater is on fire, which is to your point. But they say, but encouraging panic is never the best strategy. Predictions can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Everyone who thinks that everyone else is going to pull their money out of the bank is going to try to get in the door first. So in light of the fact that it really did was problematic, are you concerned about this was the idea? Well, you can't say that. Like You, it, you can't say it's inevitable. It seems odd. I, th- I think that we only apply that logic to poor people. We only apply that logic to the masses. The reality is what we are witnessing right now is another attempt to shift the blame. Shift the blame from the people who were trusted to be the experts who didn't manage that risk, who played fast and loose with other people's money. And when you go back to 2008 where so many people like myself were coming out of college only to find out that the job market and the world had been destroyed uh, by people who decided that they didn't want to actually deal with free markets when those free markets turned against them and their bad decisions, we see time and time again uh, that there is a lack of a accountability and a lack of stewardship. And so I think whether we're talking about freedom in the Middle East and the power of Twitter to keep people informed and to allow them to communicate, whether we're talking about what we saw happen uh, with the eat the rich, with uh, the all the GameStop and all of those things where people were able to get together to put what little information they had together and come up with a broader strategy. The same thing that rich people and hedge funds do all the time. I think power to the people against financial institutions is a good thing. It keeps people on. And the last part of that is what you talk about, making sure that the government can react and does not encourage this bad behavior time and time again. So that point, I think you raised it and you both were talking about this um, point, Emma, the idea of who had the information, the idea of who was able to circulate. You're talking about many people who were in the tech sector, many people who had all this money, who were encouraged to centralize it in one particular bank and had this very notion. What do you say to this idea of the information being out there, the notion of the self-fulfilling prophecy, even though... I mean, it was already happening in the long run. And this power dynamic he speaks about. Yeah, I think this is a peculiar kind of story because on the one hand, it's sort of a tale as old as time of deregulation and kind of playing fast and loose with people's money. And on the other hand, it is sort of an interesting situation in that it was contained within certain certain spheres of the economy. I've been speaking with a lot of founders and people who work in VC and others who did say there was a very strange um, experience in the days um, leading up to the collapse and, and after it in which they were kind of searching for any stream of information they could get. And that meant friends, colleagues, investors, and being inundated with that information and not knowing exactly what you can do to be both responsible and within the law is is a very scary situation. And 
I, I also do just want to say, I think some, some people have kind of framed this as, you know, a, a crisis that's really just hit the super rich. But so many of the people I've spoken to are also trying to figure out how to make payroll. And, you know, mm-hmm. they did spend the whole weekend wondering how they were going to pay the people who worked for them. And this was a bank that had, I think, up to 50% of the uh, tech and, and health sciences startups in the country, more than 2,500 VC firms. So there were a lot of people whose money was in this and who had to get their workers paid. You're right. I mean, not everybody. And you have a great book about sort of the democratizing of the idea of access. This is your backyard, Silicon Valley. Um, and the idea of thinking about how people are viewing tech as an elitist notion. But in reality, for to a point, it's much more um, perhaps diversified. But at the end of the day, I mean, you still have the government coming in pretty quickly um, and trying to resolve this issue. And many people are left wondering if the autopsy post this crisis was so easy to identify, why wasn't the avoidance and deterrence? Well, I think there are two things that the government was trying to prevent. One was a run on regional banks. So you didn't want everyone taking their deposits out and putting them in the top four banks. And the other thing is uh, the payrolls that were there. I mean, Rippling had 400,000 people that they were paying. Those would have stopped. So uh, this is different than the 2008 bailout. The 2008 bailout, uh, they actually helped bondholders and shareholders. Here they're using a fund that banks pay a premium simply to say, uh, to provide liquidity. And actually the assets of Silicon Valley Bank uh, are there. So hopefully it doesn't actually even deplete that fund. I think they acted pretty fast in... Uh, to get it done before the Monday markets opened. It almost has a kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't, right? How does the government work so fast? And why are you working so slow? You're working too fast, right? No, no, I, th- I think they acted with appropriate speed here. I agree with the congressman that the, the big risk here was, I mean, the, the VC firms, and you, you could have had ways to, to advance payroll and get that, get that done that would have been a little bit messier. The big problem was, and you saw this in the stocks of other regional banks, you would have had, you, you might well have had a number of additional bank failures this week, a lot more people losing access to their deposits and also losing access to loans. If you have a crisis in the, in the financial sector and businesses and individuals need credit, it can make it difficult for people to borrow. It can have really terrible effects on the economy. So I I think that was the right reaction here. I think going forward, so you don't have panics like this in the future, I mean, one thing is I think we need to revisit what the deposit insurance limits need to be. I think, it's, I think it was clear here that it's not reasonable. There are a lot of companies that need more than a quarter million dollars in the bank on an ongoing basis because they have to make payroll and that sort of thing. They can't be expected to go through the balance sheet of their bank with a fine-tooth comb to figure out if the bank is going to go belly up. Um, and then the, the, other, the, the other shift that, that you need as well is to figure out how it was that the bank was allowed to get in this position where took on all this interest rate risk. Basically, you can't just tell people, don't spread rumors, don't panic, and don't worry about banks for that reason. You need people to be confident that banks are, are going to be solvent because you need regulation and supervision that ensures that the banks actually remain solvent. That clearly went wrong here with Silicon Valley Bank. And I think there are some questions for the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco and for California regulators about exactly how they let that happen. I'm interested to learn about that. And if we can fix that, then we may have some more confidence in the future. Something tells me there'll be some hearings about all this and try, trying to figure it all out. We're going to come right back and more on this point. But one thing people should think about, just food for thought, the ease that you're now able to take money out of the bank compared to what's happened in the past. A bank run is really on your phone half the time, right? Think about the ease of that. And is that part of the new scheme? Well, listen, everyone, some parents are up in arms over a test question from an AP course in one Virginia school district. We're going to tell you what it is and why that question is being removed and get our panel to weigh in next. Next. 
and we'll keep going. But listen, everyone, Virginia's largest school system is removing a test question from an AP government studies class that's asking students to compare political ideologies using things like race and gender demographics. Now, this is happening because a parent in the Fairfax County School District posted this picture of the question on Twitter. And don't worry, I'm going to come close to your screens. We're going to tell you what it really says. And here's what it is. Writing in part, I don't care who you are or what side of the aisle you are on, it should infuriate you. Now here, of course, is an easier way to read this particular question. It's on the multiple choice question that asks students in the class, quote, which of the following is an accurate comparison of liberals versus conservatives? Now the potential answers for liberals included young white males, middle-aged urban lesbian, college-educated black male professional, and white upper-middle-class suburban male. Now, the potential answers for conservatives included East Coast Ivy League-educated scientists, Southern male migrant laborer, Catholic Midwestern middle-aged male, and West Coast Hispanic teacher. Now, the school district says that that question was actually designed to assess 12th graders' understanding of American political ideology, but it admits that it did not meet the division's high expectations. This may have been in part a part of an AP course, but the college board is confirming now in a tweet, this is not part of the AP program, adding that, quote, it is antithetical to the content and format of an AP question. And I will just say, I mean... I'm ready to be a game show host the way I read those options just now. I don't know if you saw that and felt that moment in, the, in time. But let's begin here because I want to ask you, Emma, on this idea of the question itself. I mean, the idea of trying to essentially get people to compartmentalize, categorize, use sort of stereotypes to describe what people must be thinking based on race and demographics. What's your reaction? I mean, I think in this fractious political moment where we're the, one of the greatest problems we're facing is tribalism, I think the last thing we should be doing is reinforcing the idea that um, any person's ideology tracks with demographics in a specific way. Um, I did a little bit of reporting during the 2020 election, and I think one of the things I, I learned from just going out and talking to voters is that it's really hard to know what anyone is going to say about what they believe before they open their mouths. People surprise you. And so I think that a question that reinforces that someone of a political party looks or even should look a certain way is definitely problematic and surprising to see. I do wonder the idea of political strategists out there in the business of trying to predict things, though, right? Trying to suggest, here's where you need to go. Here's the talking point you need to say. I mean, you've run campaigns, of course. You are a sitting member of Congress. The idea that people are trying to paint with such a wide brush and stroke. Does it concern you or is there some statement to be made about, look, if people are thinking this way, then we have to tap into it? Well, I think it was an inappropriate question uh, for the reasons Emma mentioned. But I think that the school district has apologized. They've said that this was wrong and it's being used to politicize the culture wars. I mean, it's not like the school district, they had a poorly worded question, they took it away, but this is sort of being used by the right to now say, well, we're not going to teach uh, about African-American history. We shouldn't teach about 250 years of slavery. We shouldn't teach about 100 years of Jim Crow. Uh, you know, it can't be used ideologically. Fine, it was a wrong question, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't teach about race and gender in our history. What do you think? This comes down to trust 
and truth. And where there is no trust, we cannot have the pursuit of truth. And so, yes, we can talk about the fact that maybe an overwhelming majority of black people have been voting for one party. The overwhelming majority of people from a certain community or cultural background are voting a certain way or part of a certain political party. Uh, but I think at some point, this is a nonpartisan, transpartisan betrayal of what America is supposed to be. And it's bled over into our politics, where you have somebody like Joe Biden says, if you don't vote for me, you ain't black. When you have individuals that say, if you're a member of the LGBTQ community, then you cannot possibly vote for a Republican, or somehow you're betraying yourself. And so, again, there is this soft bigotry uh, that is hurled, writ large, uh, with a smile on their face and a candy gram from the left uh, that doesn't actually seem to acknowledge the hatred and the hurt that is embedded in some of these black blanket, toss-away sentences. So, yes, I think, again, the reason why you have somebody in, like Ron DeSantis in Florida talking about this, the reason that you have people on Right News Networks talking about this is because every single time evidence is produced to suggest, yes, these things are happening to our children. People that look like me, that think like me, are being marginalized. It is tossed away, called a one-off, and then used effectively as the impetus to tell the people who bring this to you out of a deep-rooted concern crazy. You agree. I think this is an overreaction to a single question on a high school exam. I mean, look, obviously there is no demographic characteristic that you can read into with 100% certainty what somebody's political views or affiliation are going to be. That's obviously true. And I'm sure the person who wrote this question realizes that that's true. I, I don't know from the materials we've seen what exactly they were trying to get at in this exam in an AP U.S. government course. It's a valid topic to talk about demographic support in American politics and how that's changed over time. It's changed in some very interesting ways in recent years. Actually, there's been a decline in the racial polarization of voting during the Trump era, which I think most people don't realize. And so, I mean, not knowing exactly what the material was that they were trying to teach with this ham-fisted question, then, you know, I'm, you know, I certainly don't see any reason as a person who does not live in Fairfax County, Virginia, to, to get at agitated over this one exam question. What I if think, the question, I don't know, but what if, yeah. it, just let's assume for the sake of conversation yeah. here that the whole point of it was to um, talk about the fact that there is this highly you know, fractious community that we live in, that people are, are assuming things based on your race, your color, your gender, that you're going to vote in a monolithic way, if that's the nature of the conversation for high school students, is that problematic to acknowledge that there are some who believe that? Well, I don't think it's problematic to, to, to acknowledge that, but I also think that basically every society in history has had group divisions over politics, where you've had demographic groups that are more that tend to be more supportive of one side of one political movement or another. So I don't think that that I don't think that's an off limits topic to discuss. In fact, I think it's a it, it is a central topic in an AP U.S. government course. It should be discussed in the right way, and this question didn't do that. Your but I don't think we can infer from from this what the course is more broadly about. Your problem is about the idea of people assuming. You mentioned the word betrayal. Trail, interestingly enough, the idea that if you do not conform to this idea of the monolith, then somehow you are inauthentic as opposed to perhaps the you being, you know, that the, the, the facts or the data out there is actually erroneous. Uh, That's your issue? Look, I, I just think that this is broader than one question. If it was just one question, we wouldn't be having the conversation. The issue is Time after time, issue after issue, there are things that people are concerned about. Namely, they do not trust the government or schools uh, to give their children an unbiased perspective on what it means to be American, who they are, and the things that they should value. So, yes, I think, again, it cuts both ways. But from my perspective, yes, when you've had the 2016 nominee for president for the Democratic Party say that all Republicans, effectively writ large, are deplorables, uh, and then you turn she around and half. have some... Well, you know, the ones that didn't vote she for said her, half. right? <laughs> 
<laughs> right. And then you have... And then, details, and then, and details, 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 gentlemen. Right. You, you know, you got, you got Joe Biden saying, still not if a you great don't statement. vote for me, you're not, you're not black. I think, again, yes, we should be able to talk about our political divisions, but it wasn't a prerequisite of that conversation to say that the other people are not just wrong, but they're evil. And I think that that is where we are today, where parents are going to say, I have to assume there is an evil intent in these questions, and I have a responsibility to protect my family and my community. Do you mind if I turn to you when they say no trust in government? Congressman, how do you, how do you feel about this issue? <laughs> you know, instead of focusing on the question, which I agree was wrong, you know what I wish we would discuss in this what? country? How people are graduating high school with no knowledge of American history. Why don't we talk about learning about the Constitution, learning about the Declaration of Independence, learning about who Frederick Douglass is, learning about Dr. King? Like we have or civics, or, or more civics. I mean, We we want to have a conversation about how we're going to respect each other and treat each other with principles and not look to people's demographics. Let us have people understand American history. We've got a whole generation of people who, in my view, don't understand sufficiently American history, and we're having a conversation about one question on a high school. I mean, I would agree. I mean, I think to that point, though, I mean, look, every state you go to from New York State to Florida to California, we've got children who can read and can add. So I think the broader conversation here, right, the conversation in the background, this culture war on wokeism and the back and forth is rooted in the fact that the core competency that is required for the schools is not being met. And instead of focusing on that, we get off on all these tangents uh, where we start having conversations about uh, what is the demographic of a political party, uh, what kind of activities should the school be hiding from the parents? None of that goes to what you're talking about. We have a generation of children that do not know what they're supposed to know when they walk out of those government-funded buildings. That is the broader problem. But in the absence of us actually dealing with that, parents just want to make sure that their children aren't being taught a matter of nonsense that has them hating themselves or their community or their parents. Well, let me speak on behalf of a parent of public school children. Um, I certainly think that they, I'm certainly hoping they're not a member of a generation that's painted with such a broad stroke. I do think there's an opportunity to have both conversations. The idea of us illuminating the issues that parents are confronted with and students as well, but also more broadly, what we expect from our schools. But it really can't stop there. It's really a whole, as I said, the whole village. It also is a whole village to educate children as well. Let's go to college right now, though, because Wellesley College is holding a referendum that gets at its very identity as an all-women's school. Students are voting today whether to open admission to all transgender and non-binary applicants. That includes trans men. We're going to talk about it next. Everyone, students at Wellesley College, here's an update. One of the country's top women's colleges voted today and passing a non-binding referendum that would change their admissions process. The referendum says, in part, that, quote, Wellesley College admissions will adopt a policy that is inclusive of all transgender and non-binary prospective students. That would include trans men. Back with me now, Emma Goldberg, Congressman Ro Khanna, Joe Pinion, and Josh Barrow here as well. So again, this is a non-binding um, referendum here, but they voted in favor of considering to admit all non-binary and transgender students into the school, according to the statement from the Director of Media Relations as well. What's your thought on this? Because on the one hand, you think about what it means to be a women's college, and that's going to be the, the I was the opponent's discussion on this point, um, and the idea of an inclusive educational institution. What do you say? 
Well, I think it's no wonder that it's it's become such a fraught and you know complicated question at Wellesley because um, from following it, it seems that on the one hand you have the principal or sorry the president saying that you know she wants to honor the the legacy and the history of what it means to be a women's college, and then you have the student activists making what I think is a very nuanced point about. Um, it, what I think they said was standing by the spirit, not the letter mm-hmm. of Wellesley's principles and saying, um, what does it mean to let in all people who have been marginalized on the basis of their gender identity? And that can mean non-binary people, transgender people. You know, it's it's a lot um, of a bigger tent. Um, so I think it's raising really complicated questions. And I think it's powerful to see them playing out in this open conversation and having students actually get to air their perspectives and lead these conversations. Let me tell you what the president of the university um, actually said and wrote, and she released a statement. It says in part this, Wellesley is a women, this is before the vote, she released the statement, Wellesley is a women's college that admits cis, trans, and non-binary students, all who consistently identify as women. Wellesley is also an inclusive community that embraces students, alumni, faculty, and staff of diverse gender identities. I believe the two ways of seeing Wellesley are not mutually exclusive. Rather, this is who we are, a women's college and a diverse community. Um, Joe, you disagree with this referendum. Tell me why. Oh, well, I mean, look, I, I think for me, I, I, it's, it's twofold. I think it's a, they're a private institution. I think they have the right to do what they want to do. Wellesley gets to determine their own future. Uh, but as my grandfather told me a long time ago, you cannot serve two masters. Uh, and I think that the reality is that there is value in having a female institution, a woman institution. There's value in having all men institutions like Morehouse. There is value in being able to say there is a tradition here where we're catering to a specific subtype of student and because there are advantages to that, because there are people who have certain preferences for the type of educational environment they want to be in. Now, so, what if this wasn't gender, out of curiosity, and this was a matter of race instead? The idea of catering to and the notion was, you know, I mean, you're coming, I'm, t- I'm a daughter of a Smith graduate and an Amherst graduate. Right. At the time, they both were obviously all exclusive for men and Amherst and women for Smith still. But the idea of people want to learn in the educational comfort. I, I, I think it's a tragedy that we have effectively uh, made it so easy to categorically pivot to the marginalization of black people and compare it uh, 400 years of subjugation to, you know, some of us just simply having the conversation about saying, hey, look, there are some schools that are going to cater to all men. There's some schools that are going to cater to all women and institutions have the right to make the determination for themselves. But I think it is substantively different uh, to have a conversation about people uh, simply being discriminated against because of their race. We're not saying that there should not be places for trans men and trans women to attend universities. We're not saying that Wellesley does not have the ability to to do so. But I think to dismiss out of hand the value of having a college that speaks specifically to women, that caters specifically to women, and dismissing the value in having a school like Morehouse that caters specifically to men, I think does us all a disservice because we are tossing out a long, long legacy of things that I think a lot of people across the board, across the political spectrum would say was beneficial. I think you mistake my pivot to the idea, and I want to ask you a question about it, the idea of if the premise, your statement initially was, if the premise is people have a right to decide what environmental, educational environment they feel comfortable in, how do we not expand it beyond the notion of, of transgender, of same sex and beyond? And I would note, of course, if this is about gender identity to your larger point, Emma, um, that this is opening the doors for people who identify as women, still a women's college. What do you say? Well, I mean, I, I think that 
a, a gender-specific college is inherently not inclusive in certain ways. That's the key idea behind the institution, that you have only a certain kind of people. And we have, a, we have a lot of institutions in society that are for men or for women, and there are historical reasons that we do that, and there are ideas that, that women, I, I think women especially, but also in some cases men can benefit from institutions that are, that are specifically for them. I think that's a reason there's been such a decline in men-only colleges. You mm-hmm. see more women-only colleges that remain. Um, that said, I think it's, you know, it's up to Wellesley to decide what exactly exactly that non-inclusive metric is going to be. I think that there are visions of, you know, what the value is in having a women's institution. The idea that the the students who support this referendum articulate that it's about uh, having an institution for people who have have faced oppression or marginalization on the basis of their gender, I think that's also a coherent concept. It's just a different concept. And I think you could have a college that had either of those missions. And indeed, you've seen women's colleges that have gone in both directions on that policy. So I I don't think that from the outside, there's a correct answer to this. I think Wellesley can be the author of its future. And, and again, you know, you've seen some institutions that were once women only go co-ed because right. they decide that they, it is no, whatever purpose there was for which they wanted to be women only no longer applies. And like Vassar, for example, they decide they're going to admit everybody. So I think all of those decisions can be correct. It's just a matter for the institution. And the last thing I would note is the students do not own the institution. The, the college it has... It is non-binding. You're right, correct. Right. And the college has a, has a wide variety of stakeholders. So it's not simply that the college necessarily ought to do whatever it is that the students want to do, but I think Wellesley gets to determine its own future here. Congressman, you, we can't look at this in a vacuum, right? There's, the, uh, there's a, a whole lot of things happening legislatively at the state level and, of course, the federal level reg- regarding LGBTQ plus rights and certainly transgender communities in particular. How do you see this issue? I support the students in wanting to make the institution more inclusive. Look, a democracy depends upon renewal. It depends upon new voices. I learned so much from young people about issues of trans rights, uh, non-binary, the rights of those who are non-binary, the vocabulary. I mean, a lot of times I say things that they say, well, Ro, you maybe want to phrase it this way. And I just think we have to listen. The next, the younger generation, they they are so comfortable with folks who are trans, with folks who are non-binary. This is going to be uh, their uh, country at some point. And that doesn't mean we don't respect tradition. That doesn't mean we don't respect institutions, but we need to listen to them. And I, so I, I applaud the students. And I, my guess is, uh, just making a prediction, five to ten years out, they're probably going to be uh, the ones who are making these decisions at institutions around the country. Well, I applaud the fact that the students were able, especially to your larger point, to even have the say. We all know the power of alumni. We know the power of the legacy of, of different institutions. But the notion here that there was a voice and a sort of democratizing of this, really important to our greater conversations about education. I'll be curious to see how this all pans out. This vote just happened. The, the results just have happened. So I'll be curious to see what the reaction is as well. Everyone, the Justice Department is suing one of the country's largest pharmacies. They're accusing Rite Aid of contributing to the opioid epidemic. So was the company filling prescription with obvious red flags? We'll unpack it next. everyone. Listen, everyone, the the Department of Justice is suing drugstore chain Rite Aid, you may have seen, accusing it of ignoring red flags in opioid prescriptions. The DOJ is alleging in their announcement that, quote, Rite Aid's pharmacists repeatedly filled prescriptions for controlled substances with obvious red flags, and Rite Aid intentionally deleted internal notes about suspicious prescribers. 
Now, these practices opened the floodgates for millions of opioid pills and other controlled substances to flow illegally out of Rite Aid's stores, unquote. Now, Cena has reached out to Rite Aid for comment, but we have yet to hear back. This is pretty important to think about because we know that the approach and the reaction to the opioid crisis obviously has changed over time from how people viewed addiction in the 80s and 90s to where we are today. And we've seen a lot in terms of manufacturers and big pharma. This might be one of the first times we're really seeing DOJ go after the pharmacy that is that is providing the material. You've had a lot to say about this. In fact, interesting legislation on this very issue. Tell me about it. Well, it's outrageous what Rite Aid is doing. I mean, I have traveled through so many communities, factory towns decimated because our manufacturing left, went offshore, and people just suffering because of addiction to opioids. I mean, debts of despair is about how a lot of people in the working class have life expectancies less than they had 20, 30 years ago. And then to have companies like Rite Aid profiting on the despair and grief of Americans is sickening. And I, I don't think that's actually a partisan issue. I think you would have Republicans and Democrats saying the same thing. There is support, of course, to combat the opioid crisis in this country. And really the idea, the allegations as laid out, I mean, first of all, the fact that DOJ is bringing suit and having information that they are alleging at this point in time, very significant to think of where they are right now. What do you make of this approach? Well, look, I think that it's heartening that the government is looking into this, that you have a multi-billion dollar behemoth in many ways that has abused their ability and access to those drugs to fuel a crisis that's taken the lives of countless Americans. So I think that we should all be heartened by that. My concern is that the government, as always, uh, is many, many days late, many, many million dollars short, and millions of lives overdue. And mm-hmm. so I think even if you pivot now to what's happening here with the fentanyl crisis, we need to do more in the immediate uh, to make sure that we stop the next opioid crisis, which is already unfolding at a precipitously faster rate. And I think that there is things that the DOJ can do today. I think there are things that D.C. can do today uh, to stem that tide of fentanyl flowing from China, not interrupting those supply chains. So, yes, good on the DOJ to go after Rite Aid. We went after the doctors in white coats. Now we're going after the the lab techs in the, you know, the, in the scientific jackets and all their stuff as well. But I think at the end of the day, The real conversation is less retroactive trying to make ourselves feel good. What can we do today and what can the government do today to to prevent this from happening one more time to the American people? One thing that has to happen, we all know, and the lawyer in me is coming out, is that they've got to prove their case, first of all, right? We know that there is obviously an indictment on these institutions in terms of the court of public opinion. They got to prove their case. And this is how they've begun. Yeah, I mean, the, the sad thing is, in, in, in a way, we're decades late here. I mean, I, it's a lot easier to figure out what we could have done differently 25 years ago to prevent the opioid crisis than to figure out what to do about it now. Because when you look in Europe, where you never had the orgy of opioid prescribing that we had in the 90s and the early 2000s, very misguided approach to the treatment of pain that created this huge market that created a lot of people with opioid problems and also created the market into which you could sell heroin and then fentanyl. And then by the time we found good ways to cut off the flow of pills. You had you had the the, the mass of addicts, and so that that created the that that pushed people toward drugs that were never intended for the for the prescription market, toward heroin, ultimately toward fentanyl. And so, look, I mean, you know, when the we we have rules on prescribing for a reason, and if people are breaking them, we need to hold them accountable for that. But this sort of thing, if we had done it back in the late 1990s, is something that could have actually done a lot to stop the opioid crisis. Now, if you stop the the introduction of of opioid 
pills either into the black market or, or through through prescriptions to people who shouldn't be getting them. You're, you're sort of just pushing. You, you sort of just end up with you know people fall into the into the fentanyl problem, and fentanyl. You know, it's a lot harder to figure out exactly how to stop the flow of that because you mean it the problem being it's it's often found within a whole host of drugs now. You have well, so first of all, yes, you have you have counterfeit drugs that mm-hmm. appear to be prescription pills, but in fact contain fentanyl. But you also just have you have all of these totally black market alternatives to prescription opioids. So that by cutting off the flow, if you cut off the flow of pills in the year 2000, you would have had a lot fewer people using. If you cut off the flow of pills now, I mean, it's still a good thing to do with the margin, but you get a lot of people using heroin, using fentanyl instead. It's just a much more difficult problem to attack. But yet they're attacking it, which is a good thing. I mean, like the representative was saying, communities have been ravaged by this. Families have been ravaged by this. There's been so little accountability Mm -hmm. for all of the people who were putting profits over people's lives. So I think any level of accountability that's possible, even this late, is is obviously so important. And I was really alarmed to read the reports of, for example, comments by pharmacists being deleted that said things like cash-only pill mill and the company saying, careful what you put in writing. I think any level of accountability that's possible in a situation where profits have been consistent put over people's lives is crucial. I mean, that's the that's the nature of the allegations, right? It's not just the idea of, I mean, think about to, to sue Rite Aid or sue any institution that has as many different branches, et cetera. They are going to allege, and they are alleging some sort of coordination or something know, knowable. And the idea of turning a blind eye, this seems to be a testament of that will be leading to accountability as well, potentially. Again, DOJ's got a lot to prove and we'll see what happens here. Listen, the nature of how and where we work has completely changed over the past few years. In fact, probably the last two especially. But, you know, it turns out that working from home may not be so great for your mental and physical health. And I promise you I've not been advised and required to say that for all of you who want to still work from home. We're going to talk about why that might not be the healthiest thing anymore next. Everyone, so millions of Americans love the flexibility of working from home. But what about the impact on our mental and our physical health? There is a provocative op-ed in the New York Times under the headline, Working from Home is Less Healthy Than You Think. The author, Dr. Jordan Metzl, who's a sports medicine doctor, says that while some people use remote work to exercise more and bond with family, others became less active gained weight, and suffer from isolation and also depression. Let's see what my panel has to say about this. You can't work from home. You're a member of Congress. You can't phone it in. But how do you feel about it? Not anymore. Not anymore. Oh, oh, they got you there. Okay. Members of Congress is a privileged position. Yes, it's good for your mental health not to be working from home. But you want to do that? How about we have universal child care in this country? I mean, not everyone has that privilege to just not be able to work from home. Canada did $10 a day for childcare every family. We should do that here in the United States. At a minimum, perhaps. Yeah, I mean, I think we have to remember it's not like the old arrangements when everyone went into the office worked so perfectly for everyone. Working parents spent decades trying to do the impossible balancing act of being in the office and being at school pickup at the same time. I think what we've been given is an invitation to rethink that. Um, And I think that's why a lot of companies and workers are moving toward hybrid arrangements. Right now, about 50% of people in the country who can do their jobs remotely are in hybrid arrangements. Mm. So I think it's a lot about the opportunity of where we can get the best of both. 
I, I work from home. I just have to make sure to make a point of getting out of the apartment and going and seeing somebody as part of my schedule every day. I go, you know, <laughs> I go work out at Barry's boot camp in the morning, basically every morning. So that gets me out of the apartment. Don't before. show off. Well, every, every, every morning. I'm just, I'm just sharing my okay. truth. <laughs> and so, you know, that, that, that gets me out of the apartment. And I, you know, I make sure to make plans with friends and that sort of thing. I mean, sometimes my husband comes home and is like, have you left the apartment today? And so I really try, try to make sure that I can <laughs> yeah. avoid that question or at least answer yes to it. <laughs> What about you? Look, I, I think that not all jobs have to be an in-office job. I think COVID revealed that. Uh, I also think that, uh, to your point, there's something about getting out of the house, finding ways to, I think, sometimes get away from your spouse. Uh, you know, absence makes the heart grow fonder, as they say. But no, look, I, I think, again... Uh, Every work environment calls for a different type of setups. I think hybrid has been good. I think you make a great point that one of the benefits was people who were unable to afford childcare, not also having to give up their job to do that. So I think in general, hybrid options are good, but I think also we have to make sure that you're taking care of self, uh, mind, body, and spirit. And apparently Barry's boot camp every single morning. <laughs> That's part of it as well, everyone. I will not see you there. But I will see you in a moment because there is also an incident involving a collision over the Black Sea, and it's marking the first time that Russian and U.S. military aircraft have come into direct contact since Russia launched its invasion of Ukraine. We'll tell you exactly what happened next. Tensions in the skies, a Russian fighter jet forcing a U.S. drone down over the Black Sea. The U.S. Air Force calling the encounter reckless and unprofessional. It's another potentially dangerous escalation at a crucial time in Russia's war against Ukraine. Joining me now from the Magic Wall is CNN military analyst, retired Air Force Colonel Cedric Layton. I'm so glad you're here to help us unpack what happened in this moment. Now, Colonel, officials are saying that this drone was over international waters on the Black Sea when a Russian jet dumped fuel on and then bumped into the drone? I mean, it sounds incredibly dangerous. Yeah, it really is, Laura, and it's good to be with you tonight. But uh, yeah, where this happened is probably uh, in about this area right here. So all of this is international waters that you see right here, uh, just off the Crimean coast and, uh, of course, the southern coast of Ukraine. So this area is one in which the United States, of course, has a lot of interest in trying to figure out what's going on. And one of the reasons to fly aircraft like the MQ-9 Reaper is to make sure that uh, we understand what the Russians are doing, what the Ukrainians are doing, and what other people might be doing in the Black Sea right here. So, I mean, if this collision is confirmed as you're talking about it, this would actually then be the first real collision between the U.S. forces in this conflict. I mean, is this possibly risking escalation? It could. Uh, you know, and one of the things to uh, to keep in mind, you know, when you look at uh, at something like this, you, you see the different uh, pieces that are arrayed on the chessboard of the world right here. And one of the key things is uh, that, you know, when you use weapon systems like the Reaper, uh, you've got something that is really known for not only its weapons capability, but also as an intelligence collection a platform, which is what it was most likely doing, uh, because what it does is it uh, takes signals intelligence and imagery intelligence, depending on the package that it has on board, and it uh, correlates that data and sends it back where it can be processed by a command center. So uh, when you look at the area that we've got around here, uh, there's a lot going on, and the tensions, of course, given the fact that you've got uh, systems 
systems going up in this area, you've got uh, fighting all along here, and in the bigger map you have all of these different areas uh, right in here, so anything that could happen here uh, could clearly uh, spill over into other areas. But why are these U.S. drones, as you explained, I think one was called the, the, the Reaper and beyond, why are they in the Black Sea region? So they're in the Black Sea region because we're keeping an eye on everything that is that is going on in Ukraine. Uh, so we use this area because it's international waters, and we take a look at everything that is going on uh, in the southern part of Ukraine. And one of the key things is right here at the port of Odessa, we've got the grain shipments that are going through this area. And we want to make sure that the Russians aren't interfering with the grain shipments uh, that are keeping Ukraine alive, basically. So that's one big thing. The other thing that we want to make sure is that nobody is sending arms into uh, the Russian-controlled areas right here. And that becomes an important part as well. Plus, we also want to see what the Russians are doing in this part, Crimea, which they annexed back in 2014. Now, we don't actually know, the officials are saying they have not yet recovered this downed drone. So what does this do potentially to any possible intelligence that it might have been able to collect in a case like this? Well, the intelligence that it collected is sent in real time back to a processing center, uh, either in Europe or in some cases back to the United States. Uh, so all of the things that are that are going on here with uh, with this, if it uh, you know once it goes down, the intelligence collection stops, and then it becomes a, a situation where you're trying to get the pieces and parts that made up the Reaper and make sure that it doesn't fall into enemy hands. Uh, what you're looking at. Here here is trying to pull it off, probably off of the floor of the Black Sea, which is pretty deep in some of these areas uh, right off the Crimean coast. Colonel, thank you so much for explaining it all to us. I appreciate it so much. I want to turn now to trouble in the skies here at home, because on the eve of a crucial safety summit, the FAA is investigating, get this everyone, another close call on the runway. On March 7th, the United Airlines flight at Reagan National Airport was cleared for takeoff when an aircraft controller noticed an unauthorized plane was crossing the runway. The tense moment was caught on tape. United 2003, Runway 1, clear for takeoff traffic too well. Clear for takeoff rolling, United 2003. Oh, United 2003, scan the takeoff clearance. We're boarding takeoff, boarding takeoff, United 2003. I want to bring in CNN aviation analyst, Miles O'Brien. I mean, I have to tell you, Miles, this is apparently the, what, the seventh incident that is like this just this year alone. We're only in March, by the way. I mean, how is this possible and what is going on? Yeah, Laura, it's almost uh, like an exclamation point on the need for this safety summit that Administrator Nolan has called for. It's, um, it's hard to figure out how to connect the dots, except to say this appears to be a system that is blinking red, flashing red lights, indicating there is um, a system that is on the edge of something much worse. You know, there's an expression in aviation, the rules are written in blood. It's kind of a morbid expression, but the idea is that accidents lead to rules which make things safer. Let's hope in this case, we're talking about a series of near misses that ultimately lead to making things safer. I mean, the bottom yeah. line is that on the runway is a difficult place to be. It's a very challenging place to be. It's always been very dangerous. The FAA has focused on it for years, but it appears that people have gotten a little bit lackadaisical. I mean, speaking of runways, I mean, we know that a Republic Airways pilot crossed into this runway without authorization. And I mean, how does that happen? We're not talking about something the size of a mosquito. We're talking at the size of an aircraft 
crossing over a runway. How is that even possible? There's really no excuse for a pilot to do this, period. Uh, it's a pilot inattention. It's not really understanding where you are in the runway environment. Uh, it's perhaps just not paying close enough attention. Uh, being on the ground, uh, among other airplanes, on taxiways, some airports are, are very complicated with the way the taxiways and the runways intersect. But there's plenty of technology and warning signs built into the system to try to keep pilots from straying onto the wrong piece of concrete. But this does point out an important thing, Laura. We talk about improving the technology of the system. What we don't have the capability of doing in this country is adding concrete, making new runways, making uh, more space for planes to land at these very busy airports. That's kind of a non-starter in most locations. And that is where the choke point is right now. Let's hope that uh, pilots, air traffic controllers, and for that matter, the ground crews redouble their efforts to make this safer. Now, there will be, for the first time since, I think, 2009, there'll be an FAA summit. It's happening, actually, tomorrow. Do you think that's going to be the substance or the, the crux of the conversations, not only addressing what has happened now seven times this year, but also trying to figure out ways to, when the rules are there, how to ensure they're followed and to prevent any of these near misses? Well, we can only hope it, there is a constructive tone in all of this and not a lot of finger pointing about who's to blame here. Because if you look at it, you, we've had cases like you just saw where a pilot is to blame or a flight crew is to blame. We've had cases where air traffic control gave clearances which were not a good idea and pilots have saved the day. Uh, we've had situations where ground crews have backed planes into other planes. Uh, it appears to be uh, a system that has become a little bit complacent. And let's face it, post-COVID, uh, the airline industry is still running uh, absolutely at the max, trying to recover uh, a lack of uh, personnel uh, and full planes and uh, capacity everywhere you look. So when you're at capacity, you really need to be on your toes. You need to be on your toes anytime you're flying an aircraft, particularly now. I hope the passengers are going to be on their toes as well, Miles. Sounds like a lot happening in a short amount of time. Thank you so much. Nice talking to you. You're welcome, You know, Laura. when we come back, what voters think about diversity in America. Nearly 40 percent of Republicans apparently see it as a threat, according to some polling, which may tell you a lot about the laws that are being passed as we speak across this country. Well, there's new data out cementing why 2024 Republican hopefuls are focusing on culture wars, as they say. A new CNN poll shows 61 percent of Republicans and Republican-leading voters feel the country's increasing racial, ethnic and national diversity is enriching American culture. But then there's the other side. 38 percent consider those changes to be a threat. That's about twice as high as four years ago. Jessica Washington from The Root and CNN's own John Avalon join the conversation along with Joe Pinion and Josh Barrow. Let me begin with you, Jessica, about this. I mean, the numbers there, the, the troubling nature of them, you, you find it to be problematic. Tell us why. I think it's incredibly troubling. What we're seeing is, and this has always existed in American politics and in American society, but this growing idea that it is a threat to have a multicultural society, that is terrifying. And I think we're seeing this fear that if we acknowledge that the world hasn't always been perfect for everyone who isn't white or cis or straight, 
that that is somehow a threat, that you will then lose things as a culture. I think that's what people are really afraid of. And that's what really being seen pushed by the Republican Party right now, just from all the rhetoric, including from folks like Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, who tend to kind of toe that line. I think they're still saying, I mean, words like the drug of victimhood. I mean, those are intention, that's intentional language. And I think we are really seeing that being pushed at all levels. To give some numbers here, I mean, you mentioned the idea of legislation. Since January of 2021, 42 states have introduced bills or taken other steps aiming to place restrictions on issues of how race and sexism are even taught. And 18 states have imposed such limits according to an Education Week analysis. How do you see this? Well, look, uh, you know, the, the, the positive sign is that 61% of Republicans don't think a more diverse America is a threat. The problem, of course, is that nearly 40% do. And our polarized politics means people play to the base, especially if they're trying to win primaries. I, I actually respectfully disagree that Tim Scott and Nikki Haley are focusing on the most divisive edge of the culture wars. I think they walk a line. They're both from South Carolina, but obviously they're fundamentally diverse. And they've made a case, Tim Scott and I were talking about how the country doesn't, you know, we don't need to whitewash the past, but that doesn't mean you can't have a more optimistic view of America. But, but what I think is, is, is troubling, obviously, is that 40% in a primary that's real weight. And, and that accounts for the disconnect we've got in our politics between the primaries and the general election. It accounts for a lot of these more divisive policies. The good news, if you go through the crosstabs, the younger the Republicans are, the less likely they are to support this stuff. Um, but this is still a big number mm. for America in 2023. It's a big number. And the, the idea of culture wars more broadly being talked about, the idea of, you know, Governor Nikki Haley, former ambassador, began her campaign talking about that she was not white, she was not black, mm-hmm. knowing full well the impact of race to your larger point. Senator Tim Scott oftentimes spoken about and referencing even in Iowa, right, the idea of what he called the more optimistic view of America, but also there is the element of the impact of race, mm-hmm. the impact of how it's talked about, the so-called wokeism we've talked about in the past. What's your take on, on where things are right now in this poll? Well, I think there's a lot of enthusiasm to talk about things through this frame, especially in Republican primaries. I mean, we saw this even with the Silicon Valley bank failure, where, you know, you saw so many Republican politicians, including including Ron DeSantis, coming out eager to blame that yeah. on diversity, equity, and inclusion and wokeness. I, I don't think there is a woke way or a non-woke way to screw up your interest rate management no. and cause your bank to become insolvent. But that's the first thing that a lot of those Republican politicians will reach for, partly because it's easy to talk about. Math is hard, and it's easier to, to, to complain about DEI. Is it but red meat, though? But it, and, and partly because it's red meat, but at the same time, you see the way that Republicans ran the congressional elections in 2022, where they managed to take back control of the House. And Mitch, and, and, and the Senate, they obviously had candidate issues, but the way Mitch McConnell would talk about the way that they ran that campaign is they were trying to talk about inflation, energy, the border, uh, crime, really substantive issues that voters care a lot about. Now, obviously, these, you know, the, these issues can have culture war elements. They can have elements that relate to racial divides, but they're, they're not made up issues. They are, they're really core issues that, that people care about. And I think when Republican candidates ran on those things, they tended to do pretty well. When you instead had, you know, weirdo candidates who ran on weirdo ideas, you saw them lose, especially in Senate races. So I think, I think this really is Republicans in a significant way being being out of touch with the general electric mm-hmm. and uh, general electorate in some ways being out of touch with what their own strongest issues are that are available. For some reason, the comment weirdo really made you champ at the bed. Was like, <laughs> <laughs> He's like, wait, wait a second. They waited me like a person. Well, what about well, it? <laughs> weirdo's one way to talk about the election denialism that is, 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 is a litmus <laughs> test. But I think, look, the backdrop of all this is resistance to multiracial democracy has been one of the defining features of American politics since at least Reconstruction. Mm. So it's not a not a 
surprised that that note is being hit. The problem is the word threat, right? I mean, threat is all about fear. Fear leads to hate. That's the danger in that number. Look, uh, I think that we just have to be honest about the fact that race has been weaponized in American politics, Mm -hmm. period. It's been weaponized in this poll because, quite honestly, to your point, the poll is missing context. Where is the other side politically on this? And it's been weaponized specifically because we don't even know what people mean when they hear that word. Specificity of language being the issue. You talk about the word word diversity, diversity, right? And I think even to your point, you bring up the word threat. Threat is important because we had a, you know, basically a majority of Americans across the political spectrum that said that there was a threat to our democracy as the top issue on their mind uh, in 2022. And yet, if you ask Republicans and you ask Democrats, the nature of that threat was very different. That's a very, so that's a great so point. I think, again, if we're just talking about broadly here, uh, is there and has there always been pushed back to telling the whole story about America, people who don't want to acknowledge that deepest, darkest stain on the soul of this nation, slavery and racism and the like? Yes, we have to acknowledge that. I've often said racism goes where it can find the most oxygen. Sometimes it finds oxygen on the left. Sometimes it finds oxygen on the right. But overall, I think, again, we have to be honest about the fact that both political parties in this two-party system in a four-party nation have been able to use the pain and suffering of communities. And I, I, I even in something as basic as, you know, education, right? I mean, people talk about the issue with education. The vast majority of the richest districts in New York State are places where liberals lived. And yet somehow when we have those conversations, it's never a conversation about saying how has the left weaponized the pain and suffering of black people. So I just think in general, we have to be able to have that broader conversation about the fact that it's not one party weaponizing race, it's all parties recognizing Jessica? Yeah, I think it's really, one thing I just have to talk about is this idea that like liberals in New York City are a part of the left. I think that that is a bit of a misnomer. I think there are plenty of people who are liberal and also are can be partake in racism in the same way that you can say that people on the right partake in racism. But I think generally these left-leaning ideas are anti a lot of kind of that racist rhetoric that we're seeing. And I also think that there is something to be said about ignoring the modern-day racism. I think it's so easy to say racism existed in the past. And I think when I say that Nikki Haley and Tim Scott are kind of playing into that, that's what I mean. They want to pretend like racism existed— And now we're here. And I think that that is a part of that kind of fear. It is if we acknowledge that racism is still an ever-present part of our democracy, a part of this growing multiracial democracy, then we're going to be moving in a dangerous direction, as opposed to saying, well, hey, what if we acknowledge what's happening isn't great, what's happened isn't great, and let's move forward together. And I think that that is kind of what I'm getting at when I say that Nikki Haley and Tim Scott are playing into that. And and I think that's a very fair point. What they're doing in simply acknowledging uh, America's original sin of of racism and slavery and Tim Scott telling the story of his grandfather and how it affected him itself stands out from a lot of the rhetoric you hear from Republican politicians, particularly in the South. I think it is, though, important also to make a distinction, and you can argue they're weighting it incorrectly, about the progress that has been made while there's gains that we still need to make as a country to reach our ideals. A really sharp point. I'm going to come back to this point. Jessica, I think it was a really sharp point, the idea of so many people think about this clear delineation between then and now mm-hmm. as opposed mm-hmm. to, we talk about the civil rights era as if it's finite, as mm-hmm. opposed to an mm-hmm. ongoing movement. It's important to think about in the context. More on all this in a moment, everyone. Another area and topic that's going nowhere in this country. Well, President Biden visiting Monterey Park, California, two months after the deadly mass shooting there. And he's laying out details of his newest executive order to combat gun violence. We'll tell you what he says next.
President Biden calling on Congress to pass legislation to curb gun violence. Speaking in Monterey Park, California, where 11 people were killed in a mass shooting in January. The president detailing his new executive order directing the attorney general to enforce existing laws on background checks, but pushing Congress to pass even stronger universal background checks and an assault weapons ban. Listen. Ban assault weapons. Ban them again. Do it now. Enough. Do something. Do something big. Back with us now, Jessica Washington, John Avalon, Joe Pinion, and Josh Barrow. Let me ask you, Josh, about this, because he is announcing an executive action, which I know can be very dirty words to people in politics. They did have an executive order. Um, not the dirtiest of words, no. but they are dirty words to some people. But asking to increase background checks. Um, given that, well, there is the legislative branch that might not have the appetite in this moment in time, is this symbolic or more? It seems pretty symbolic. I mean, you know, there are executive orders where the executive branch tries to usurp all sorts of power that it doesn't have. And there are executive orders that basically say, hey, go try and do this thing that you're already doing. Try to do it a little bit better. This one seems to be in that category where basically there are a number of existing policies and they're saying, can we, can we tighten up on this? Can we do these checks a little bit better? But fundamentally, it doesn't really change our policy toward guns. And, and more broadly, I mean, look, we're in, we're in a country with an, an enormous gun ownership rate with a constitutional right to gun ownership, and with a political culture that strongly supports policies that allow for a lot of gun ownership. Even if you had an assault weapons ban and you had very, and you increased background checks and that sort of thing, it would still be generally permissible to own a handgun in the United States. You have a lot of other countries where that's not where that's not the rule, where it's much harder to get a gun and you have much lo lower rates of, of gun death. But not only is that not the case here, it cannot be the case here. People do not want a, a, a set of policies that is similar to Japan or the United Kingdom or some of these places where that's the case. And so there are things we could do at the margin if there was a willingness to do certain legislation. We see some of this in the states. I mean, you know, I think that there have been some moves on red flag laws in recent years that I think improve things at the margin. But ultimately, it's all stuff at the margin. These are not likely to have large effects. Well, the Supreme Court, obviously, and weighing it as well, and they have a big role in how we think about the Second Amendment in particular. I want to I show for you guys a statement that was made by um, uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas on the issue in particular on what it takes to really be able to prove and evaluate these sort of gun cases that are coming before the court. He talks about, oh, um, we hold that when the Second Amendment's plain text covers an individual's conduct, the Constitution presumptively protects that conduct, to your larger point, Josh. To justify its regulation, the government must demonstrate that the regulation is consistent with this nation's historical tradition of firearm regulation. This was a case back in June of 2022. First of all, the language in of itself kind of reminds you of something else about the historical traditions and, and echoes back to a conversation around Dobbs. But the idea here now, if you realize that the best courtroom experts nowadays are not law enforcement, are not cops, et cetera, are not even manufacturers. It's now historians, John, yeah. whose job it is to try to figure out what this historical context really looks like. What do you think about this? Well, first of all, I, I love it when historians uh, get involved in, in contemporary debates. <laughs> I, see I think the it's, smile it's on clarifying. Face, it gives us necessary perspective. But this decision by, by Clarence Thomas is fundamentally flawed in like five different ways. Uh, first of all, the original historic context, lest we forget the other half of the sentence that we always forget, is, you know, a well-regulated militia. So that's part of the historic contents that's written into the law, the, the text of the Second Amendment, that is not uh, apparently applicable 
in, 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 in current days. Second of all, that historic balance between gun rights and the public interest, which was the historic context, we see over and over again in American history. You couldn't take your guns into town in the Old West. Right. I mean, there, there are a number of reasonable restrictions that have been part of American history since the very beginning, let alone the ahistoric nature of, of, you know, comparing muskets to what we have today. So so this is the law of the land. We have the Second Amendment. I mean, that is that is scientific fact. But this law, the redefinition of it leads us to get histor- historians to come in to say, here's what the, the real context is in terms of those weapons. And a lot of judges don't want to hear it because it's actually ideological. It's not historical. It's not and by the way, I mean, a lot of things can be completely absurd when you try to test it because some things that our founding fathers never contemplated, for example, I mean, just two real world examples, everyone here, West Virginia striking down a prohibition aimed at ghost guns. Mm-hmm. Because in 1791, firearms didn't have serial numbers. So not particularly uh, strange here. And also in Texas, a judge ruled it was unconstitutional to take guns from domestic abusers. Because apparently that wasn't part of our history in, in this country, in, in this realm. When you think about where things stand right now and the idea of trying to look exclusively to the history to figure out where we are now... With the technological advances and with where we think about gun culture today... Is it still appropriate to be so backward looking? Yeah, I think it is a little bit absurd to try and go all the way back in time and figure out exactly what they would have meant, especially because, I mean, obviously we've moved forward in our society. We've decided that domestic violence is a crime, which, you know, it wasn't. There are all these things. But I do have to say, I mean, if we if someone does want to be an originalist, you do have to look at the fact that guns were completely different. I mean, if you had a musket, that is not the same thing as an AR-15. Mm-hmm. And so if they want to be originalists, if that's really what they want, then they have to kind of think about the context, which did not account for the mass murders that we're seeing today, thanks to gun violence. You've made this point in a, in a similar fashion, the idea of almost selective contextualizing. Um, throughout today. And I wonder how you see that point. Look, I I think first and foremost, uh, God bless uh, Justice Thomas. He doesn't speak for the entirety of the court or even all of what is considered the conservative bloc. I do think, again, this is an important conversation and we should go back to why we're having the conversation. On one hand, we're dealing with the fact that statistically speaking, the leading cause of death uh, for children now is gun violence. So people want to do something about that issue. But I think to your point, and even if we go back to what uh, the individual said about the FAA, right, that you should be passing laws that save lives. And the problem that we have in guns in this country overwhelmingly are legal guns that effectively become illegal through the black market and hand up in the hands of criminals who have no respect for our God-given laws. So until we're going to get serious about passing laws that actually prevent the crimes that we're trying to stop, then I think that there are going to be people who believe in that Second Amendment constitutional right that are not going to engage in good faith because if we're being honest, the people on the other side of the aisle are not engaging in good faith. Joe, I, I gotta ask you, what, what laws uh, do you think that you would support that could reduce gun violence? I, I'm with you on the, the enforcing existing laws. I'm, if, I'm with you on the fact that criminals don't respect laws in the first place and the traffic occurs between states. I get that as a New Yorker. But what laws would you support that would reduce gun violence? Because it sounds like you think we should pass them. We just don't have the political will. Well, it's not a matter. First and foremost, let's say this. I think that there, there, there are just certain criteria that I think can be applied, I think most people who support a Second Amendment would agree to. I don't think people in the midst of a mental health crisis should have access to guns. I don't think that we should be sitting here trying to, uh, at the same time, say that people who are purchasing guns legally should have overwhelming uh, obstacles placed in their way. So I think for me, my focus is trying to figure out, from experts, because I am not one, where is that 
that, that critical inflection point where legal guns, guns purchased legally, are ending up on the black market, right? When are these guns coming up the iron corridor that are ending up in places like Illinois? What is that mechanism? Because I think that that is what we need to be focusing on. And I think too often we talk about everything that surrounds uh, that inflection point and not the actual fact that there are a, th- okay. this, there's a real problem. Josh, what's your... Yeah, I mean, I, I think the, the idea that people experiencing a mental health crisis should not be able mm-hmm. to, to get a gun is, is, is a common sense idea. The problem is that when you have a legal regime that starts from a presumption that you have a right to own a gun, and then you have a burden on the government to show that somebody has a particular reason why they cannot be trusted with a gun, and especially something as subjective as who's having a mental health crisis. It's different from just showing that, that, showing that somebody mm-hmm. is a convicted felon, for example. It is difficult to have a truly effective enforcement regime around that. You can make changes at the margin. You will stop some people who are having mental health crises from, from obtaining a gun. It just, it just won't work all the time. It can't work all the time because you start from the presumption that the person is not having a mental health crisis and is entitled to a gun. It's, you know, it's, it's inherent in our system where there is a presumption that people are allowed to own guns if they want them. But I think that's the point, though, right? I think the point is that, again, if we're going to have an honest conversation, then we have to have a conversation about the fact that we are now shifting into a place where there is a not insignificant amount of people on one political side of the aisle that do not believe in an absolute right to gun ownership. And I think that if we're going to, if we're going to have the, the conversation... The NRA used to not believe in an absolute right to gun ownership. This is not about the NRA. I mean, I think... Well, I, it kind of is. It, but it's not, though. I think well, would we, you support an assault weapons ban? No. Okay. But I think that, that would, that would but, the, wait, but to be clear, I mean, and I, I, I get. I just, hold on. I, I, I want to. I want to hear this point. Not you respond. I, what, were you, what was your point you're trying to raise? Would you support an assault weapons ban? Because when it was in place, as President Biden was saying, there was a decrease in mass shootings. Now you can argue it's it's incomplete and things would slip through, but there's a concrete thing that Congress has done, could do. Originally passed bipartisan support. Would you support that? No, I wouldn't support it because okay. the same by, the same actual data that you're citing, all the fact checkers across the board say that it is a mixed bag. It is not clear cut one way or another. So again, my point is this, right? That we should have an honest conversation about the fact that the machine gun is not for the elk, right? That we're not actually here talking about a yep. constitutional right to hunt. We're talking about people who put in place as the Second Amendment, uh, right after the first one, which is our constitutional right to free speech, to ensure uh, that people could live free in this nation and be free free of a tyrannical government. That is the reality of why the Second Amendment was put in place. We should be honest about that. And so to your point, when we're talking about a well-regulated militia... Oh, man. I mean, I wonder if we just... If this can all be resolved this evening. Oh, wait. No, it can't. It can't. I guess we'll have to end it there for a second, everyone. Look, there's new data showing fatalities on our highways, and they're going up. Could the reason be in your pocket or maybe in your hand or on this desk? That's next. Highway fatalities are up 22% compared to just 2019. Is this all because of distracted driving? Well, the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration estimates that in 2020, less than 10% of auto accidents were from distracted driving. But the National Distracted Driving Coalition now says the numbers are really closer to maybe 25 to 30%. So what can be done about this? Back with me now, my panel. Listen, I know some of you are New Yorkers, but hopefully you all drive um, and thinking about this. But the real issues here, thinking about this, a survey finding that 56% of drivers read a text or an email while driving. 27% of drivers checked social media. And this figure, 19% were shopping online. I mean, 
my kids are too young to drive this moment in time, but I'm always skeptical of the idea. I'm thinking, how is it possible that people are doing this behavior on the road? Do you feel more or less safe hearing these numbers? This is terrifying. This is Thank terrifying. you. And I don't, I'm going to be honest, I don't really drive much and I'm terrified to drive on the highway. So this is just kind of helping my this argument. This reinforces it. Yes, no, I've been trying to say I don't really want to learn how to drive again. So this is great. But it is also terrifying and awful. And yeah. <laughs> it's great. But, but it is awful. I mean, I think part of what's happening here is also we're just so addicted to our phones and it's not our fault. Mm-hmm. I mean, they are making money off of getting us to constantly be swiping on Instagram to constantly be texting, to be shopping online, which is crazy. But, I mean, this is definitely a product of tech companies and Mm. social media companies just kind of running wild and getting us as addicted as possible. They might say the dopamine effect, though, is really about you. You you have to have some self-restraint and discipline. I mean, uh, I'm not saying you. I'm talking about you (laughs) in society, right? But the idea of thinking about it, is is the onus on the companies to stop us from enticing, or is it us to stop doing it? Well, it's on us to stop doing it, but it's also on the government to to enforce the law. You're not allowed to, to like to play with your cell phone while you drive. I, I, I had an Uber driver about a year ago who had an iPad set up showing a soccer game as he was driving, and I had to ask him, could you please turn well, who off was, the soccer game? Who was game? playing? I, 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 but, and and, I he, and he literally, literally said to me, he was like, why? It's like, because you're driving. But I, but I actually, I don't buy this as the reason mm. that, that auto accidents and auto accident fatalities are up. I think what's happened is that the police have stopped enforcing the laws. In New Jersey, the police are giving out about, about half as many moving violation tickets now as they used to before COVID. It's similar in New York City. NYPD is handing out, out about half as many tickets as they used to. People are just not getting in trouble for speeding anymore, and so they are driving more recklessly. There's also been a proliferation of cars that either have obscured license plates or that have expired temporary license plates, so the government can't track people down when they drive through speed cameras. I, you know, I've, I have a car. I drive a lot between here and Long Island, and people drive like maniacs out there, and I think part of it is just because the government is not enforcing the laws like it used to and like it's supposed to. And so I think a key part of the solution here is people need to be afraid that they're going to get a speeding ticket if they drive like a maniac. I don't think speeding tickets have anything to do with this particular shape. First of all, I love driving, right? And 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 uh, you, you know, you can be a New Yorker and drive. Don't be afraid. embrace embrace the great American road trip. But um, this is about distracted driving in particular, right? And and you know, fatalities are up. Sometimes you don't know the the exact context. Here's what's crazy about this. Yes, we have a problem with the devices distracting us. Yes, we need to have more self discipline. We can't expect the cops to enforce what we do in our own car. I got a lot of sympathy for people well, who we are using. Can. I mean, that's the law. Well, but, they, but no, because the, because <laughs> Cops aren't going to have their eyes in, in, in your dashboard all day long, nor should they. But, but look, I got a lot of sympathy for people who are using their phone to, you know, to, as, a, as a GPS, in effect. using. Right. But shopping? That's just a Darwin Award thing. I mean, we are not at a self-driving car yet. You're shopping? And, of course, it's not just hurting yourself. It's hurting other people. And it's inexcusable. This is a selfishness that leads from that being so in your head that you get distracted every second and you feel your impulse is the most important thing in the world. And no one has quick. said that we should get rid of the iPhone. <laughs> I see what you did there. I see what you did there. All right, well. 22% increase. Innocent people are losing their lives. Take it to Tim Cook. Is he an Android user? Is that what's happening right now? I don't know. We'll see. I mean, I, no judgment either way. I'm just saying. I but think the personal I mean, responsibility, accountability, 
people have to follow the laws, I think you have to start there. It's no one to blame but us. Uh -huh. Also, poor people still have cars with cassette players in them, so God bless them. Again, you just have to realize the fact that people can't afford the new Tesla. People are dealing with antiquated technology paired with new age technology You're that in many Tesla, ways... Man. Well, Teslas are driving themselves. The people that can't afford the Tesla still have to have their phone in their hand trying to figure out where Waze is telling them to go. So, well, there are yes. some Amazon devices you could use. I'm just saying on the idea of, not, of being that. But I, the point well taken, and again, I wonder... I mean, we can have self-driving cars and everything else. Is there a way to maybe make the technology keep up with what we want about our drivers? Hmm, food for thought, everyone. Everyone say with me today when we come back, if artificial intelligence writes your cover letter or bolsters your resume, is it cheating? We'll talk about it next. So here's a question. Can ChatGPT find you a job? Bosses are catching job applicants using artificial intelligence to bolster their resumes. But is it cheating or just a simple boost? Let's put the bot to the test. I asked ChatGPT to write a cover letter for yours truly, a primetime TV host role for a CNN, and the candidate's name is Laura Coates, who's also an attorney. Here is the automated response, and it reads in part, Dear hiring manager, I am excited to apply for the primetime TV host role at CNN. <laughs> I haven't read this before, people, by the way. As a highly experienced attorney with a passion for engaging with audiences, I believe that I am the ideal candidate for this position. With a law degree from the University of Minnesota and extensive experience in legal commentary, I have developed a strong understanding of complex legal issues and a track record of delivering informative and engaging content to viewers. As a regular contributor to CNN's news programs, I have long admired your commitment to impartial and comprehensive news coverage. I believe that my experience and skills align perfectly with your mission. Sincerely, Laura Coates. Now, I did not write that, although I would put her as the primetime host. I'm going to put that out there, everyone. My panel is back. Is it cheating, by the way, the idea of using it for a cover letter? I think for a cover letter, it's a little different. I think if you're doing it for a resume, maybe not. But a cover letter, I mean, that is supposed to be you showing your employer they're a good writer. But what I do have to say is it's interesting that, you know, people who are wealthier send their cover letters out or their resumes to get checked. They get them created for them. We all know that wealthy parents have college applications written by professionals for their kids. And so it is a little bit weird if we're going to focus on the kind of AI level cheating mm -hmm. and not all this other stuff where if you have a professional network or rich parents or you're independently wealthy, you can get all this extra help. I mean, a cover letter is in many ways a summary of what's in a resume. And I think the fact that a computer can write an accurate cover letter reflects that it is not really a creative exercise, that it is basically a descriptive, you know, here, here's who I am and here's a bunch of boiler, boilerplate about why I love your company so much. Um, and so, you, yes, you can have somebody else write the letter for you. I also think cover letters are just kind of a dumb, antiquated practice. I think that they don't actually contain a lot of information. I don't think employers should be asking for them. And as for a resume, a resume is a purely factual document. So long as the, the resume accurately describes uh, what it is that you do, it, it, what it is that you've done, it doesn't matter whether you wrote it or a computer wrote it or some other person wrote mm. it for you. Well, look, I, I would disagree. I think, look, the world is changing. Schools are starting to now have to catch up. I think employers are going to have to catch up. Again, the chat GPT is only as good as the prompt, right? They could have said, please write my cover letter in the style of Robert Ludlum or Norman Mailer or Walt Whitman, right? So they're, they're to your point, yes, it's a creative exercise, but increasingly AI is doing 
doing all of those creative exercises on our behalf better and better by the day. This is why it is going to be the crisis of our time. And yes, I think the cover letter in some ways, the least of our worries as it retains to the long-term impact on the workforce and our ability to discern who is actually capable and who is not. Well, I wish Robert Ludlum had been included. I would have been Jason Bourne in this particular <laughs> I appreciate a Robert I Ludlum reference. I feel like, I, I know. Really... I, I mean, you know what? I'm going to add that to the resume. And for now, <laughs> if anyone's asking, I'll take the 11 o'clock. Everyone, thanks for watching. <laughs> Our coverage continues.